We're about to have Frank Goldbeck come on. He is one of the co-founders of Golden Coast Mead. And they're reviving this ancient tradition. We should learn about it because there's a lot more to it than just being an alcoholic beverage. So here, let's check it out. I can tell you why I cannot find the sky every night I can't I often think I'm a professional bubble popper. You know, you just gotta like find a strategy that works to pop this unique person's bubble. And, mm. uh, and hopefully, you know, do it in yeah. a fun, playful, engaging, humble way. And, and you've done they it. They want to find out more. And you've done it. You're in USA Today. You're, you. I mean, you've really, you've taken a niche and exploded it, and you've made it more of a household word than it was. So there's a lot of us trying to do this. So how did you do it? Thanks. Thanks, man. Um, well, I think, you know, it's all, it's all relative. I think, um, you know, you, you can't expect to boil an ocean, as it were. Um, you've got to just, if it's something you're passionate about, and, uh, you know, I think, passion like that fundamental question what if you had all the time money and energy in the world what would you do and that's like one of the most direct routes to passion um if it's what you're passionate about you're gonna keep trying and failing and learning from your failures and committing to being better and better you know over time so you know we've been at golden coast mead for four and a half years i've been making mead for friends for almost 10 years and you know, I've had a lot of opportunity to introduce people to what meat is and share its like most beautiful parts, um, and kind of refining over time what parts I focus on based on my audience is, I think, one of the key elements to success. You know, if, if people are into craft beer, then I can talk about the the craft of mead and how it's really innovating something that was forgotten about and so the constraints that you face with beer and and styles being defined aren't there so we can innovate just brand new styles of mead that no one else has heard of or if if it's more of an audience that cares about ecology and bees and uh people's relationship with the earth like i can talk about how bees are collecting different kinds of nectar which lead to different kinds of honey which a mead maker who's paying attention can craft into a mead that will hopefully just really inspire these people to love this place that this honey came from and so draws this whole connection between the place and the bees and the people and that synergistic symbiotic relationship um or which is the truth history and culture you know we can talk about that ten thousand years of recorded history with mead in it including like the rig veda where like the universe is the footsteps of krishna um and and they are filled with mead uh and there's like other awesome stuff like the viking epic the runa hall where odin who's like the zeus of the viking gods uh gets a drink of the mead of poetry and he says a a drink i took of the magic mead and i began to know and to be wise to grow and to weave poems so to kind of know your audience and like have a really rich um retinue of stories or or you know at least conversation starters that might resonate with these folks is really oh and then also meet as a dance party like everyone loves that like a meet party as a dance party so like I, I lead with one of those four kind of approaches depending on who I'm talking to and then you know, get into that there's 600,000 flowers in every bottle and really try to make them like digestible pieces, like reading the back of a book or like, you know, talking to a friend about something that they love um, so that so that it sticks with them. And then, you know, when they have the opportunity, they, they choose to try it for themselves. So it seems like you cover the head, the heart and the stomach. <laughs> nice. I like that. Yeah, very beautiful. I love the fact that you guys do go intellectual. Like, I was reading some of the things you wrote on your page, and you wrote agopic love, you know, like brotherly love. It's like very, you know, wow, you know. Um, 
You guys clearly are so passionate about what you do, and I feel like that exuberance carries uh, a lot of your product. And I and I think that the idea of stories selling a product is superb. And I think that we need to know our own story to uh, to kind of begin, or we have to create our story and believe that story. Did uh, someone alluded to this on on my Facebook when I was talking about tonight? Uh, they they asked about the origins of your recipes, and someone said that it was your grandfather's recipe, and was curious as to how much it has changed as you had to com like scale up size and commercialize, so to speak. Yeah. So the first mead I ever tried was the last bottle of mead my grandpa made. Wow. Uh, I know, that's pretty rad, right? Uh, <laughs> I didn't really recognize how magical this was. I, I did recognize how magical the mead was because when I drank it with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and my best friend at the time, who's now my, one of my business partners, uh, it was like sunshine and flowers in the glass, like everything I imagined mead would be and more. Uh, but... Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my... my my uncle told me that he came across my grandpa's mead recipe once, and I was like, just amped. This was after the mead company had started, so I was just amped. I totally wanted to, to take it and use it. But we uh, uh, we have yet to really find it and, and to, to try to make a batch. So what we did was we made a batch pretty, well, a few months after we tried my grandpa's first bottle, and it turned out really bad. <laughs> <laughs> But we were in college, and we were very proud of ourselves for having done it. So we drank it anyways, um, and shared it with everyone that would, was willing to, to try it, and uh, had some dance parties regardless. Uh, but over time, you know, we just um, refined the recipe on a five-gallon batch scale and, um, you know, took it one step at a time we didn't know if we could make a commercially and our first batch was about 140 gallons on a commercial scale and we were just renting extra space from a winery in a custom crush agreement which is basically a contract where you pay the winery to make the the product for you and then you can turn around and sell it if you got the proper licenses um so we got those licenses which weren't the production licenses just, just the sales licenses and then we were hands-on in the production and brought the honey down and everything but uh we uh, had to learn you know we're still learning i mean it's crazy man like the amount i didn't know i didn't know is still kind of humbling but it's so cool because like the incremental steps we're taking now are to really like refine the product and polish it. Uh, whereas like the first four years, I mean, they were like significant swings from like a more dessert style port like mead with a lot more residual sugar and a, and a wine yeast. Uh, and you know, they were delicious, but it was tough to drink more than two glasses really. And now we've got these, more lighter bodied effervescent meads and folks can drink like a bottle in a sitting um we like to say one bottle between two people is a good night um but that that process of iteration and, and refinement has really like required a lot of like self-work uh there was a time when i was just so married to like every comment about our mead because i felt like it was a direct reflection of my soul yeah. uh, which <laughs> Joel Salatin kind of laughs about, you know. Uh, but then after some kind of, like, a kind of stark reality, we were working really hard and it wasn't taking as much traction as we were hopeful, hoping for. So it was like, okay, maybe I just need to get myself out of the way. And we found Maury Fletcher, who uh, introduced us to meads made with ale yeast. And when we tried his meads, we were like, oh my gosh. I could drink a lot more of these. What about you? And my business partners are like, yeah, me too. Huh. Maybe we should get more on the team. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's been a lot of um, trial and error. There's been a lot of self-work. There's been a lot of uh, digging into the technical aspects. Like, then we started making these ale yeast meads and 
packaging them was like way different than packaging our wine yeast meads. Basically, the wine yeast meads, when they were done, they were done with the ale yeast meads. Like they would still ferment in the bottle. So we had to like understand the technical aspects of re-fermentation in the bottle and, you know, how much one percent sugar in your solution will result in terms of carbon dioxide in the bottle. And so, like, I was just working on that today with our sour mead. Like, is our sour mead going to produce the same amount of CO2 as our uh, cultured yeast mead? Can you predict that? Can you predict that? Or is that something you have to just trial? Yeah, I mean, this is like, um, I wish I could pull out the, the quote Dumbledore tells Harry Potter. But, like, (laughs) we're entering the vague space of conjecture and educated guesswork or something like this like like it's it's stuff that no scientist has really looked at like what is the carbon dioxide production of lactobacillus bretomyces saccharomyces yeast blend versus straight saccharomyces uh in in honey water medium (laughs) so it's kind of rad like we get to make up stuff that no one else has done but it's also kind of daunting like being a explorer a little bit um like hopefully it's one step closer to the end point but we're not really sure <laughs> so have you seen this this popular facebook post that's that's bouncing around about this in sweden scientists are going to use mead to oh instead yeah. of antibiotics so so we no one no one knows if this is real or not or if this is kind of a uh, a marketing thing so please tell us is it well, is it real are you my doctor is, now is my opinion like I, I haven't examined their process or their science or anything i did check out their youtube video or their, they had an indiegogo campaign going and like the it morning didn't... they launched they emailed us like back in june and so I was like, this sounds awesome. Uh, maybe we could work with these guys in the States because they're based out of uh, Sweden. Yeah. Norway? He's a scientist, Sweden. supposedly. Yeah. I, I mean, so it was fascinating. And I guess the premise is they use the lactobacillus cultures from the bee's honey crop, which is like their traveling stomach. Um, and that then ferments the mead and so you get this super probiotic you know alcoholic drink Full and spectrum. um we've been successful in uh fermenting a lactobacillus mead and like it makes everyone that drinks it report good feelings in their stomach and otherwise um so i i am i am biased towards them being successful uh but the particulars that it could like counter uh, antibiotic resistant uh, infection is a big claim. And I mean, there's a great story behind it. Like, mead was where the word medicine came from uh, through Old Welsh. So, take. Uh, methaglin which is the word for mead made with spices oh yeah and, you know give us about a thousand years of etymological change and you get the word medicine absolutely that's awesome so it like uh that there could be some probiotic magic going on in traditional mead fermentations because what they used to do to make mead was just throw the whole hive into a pot um and basically ferment that mix of bees and honey and wax. And there's all kinds of probiotic stuff living in a beehive. Um, and inside so, the whole bee. So, wow, they took the whole bee. So they're doing, pro- yeah, they probably did make medicine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with the bee venom in there, propolis, uh, all the bee fungus venom. that's probably growing in the hive. And whatever microbiota is living in the bees' guts, like... If you don't totally boil your mead and, and neutralize everything, which I imagine they're not doing, I imagine they're just heating it, um, I imagine you're getting a pretty lively brew. <laughs> so is yours raw, or did you, like, pasteurize yours? 
So we just mix our honey and water, but our honey source could definitely be more raw. And as we grow, we envision building a market for raw honey at an industrial scale, raw and as organic as possible honey at an industrial scale. Um, So, you know, one of our hopes is to have three tiers of product where like our baseline product is basically commodity honey coming from the big beekeepers, but our second tier is from small local beekeepers who are uh, coming to us and giving us their raw local awesome honey. And then our third tier would be from our own estate hives where it's kind of like everything from flower to hive to bottle is managed by us. Wow. And so I don't know if you know this, but, uh, if you want to get, you know, essential oils or something like that, or uh, herbal medicines, half those things are distilled in like an alcohol. And so what you do is you take alcohol and a bunch of herbs, and you just let it sit. And you pull the herbs out, and the herbs are worthless now, but your your alcohol suddenly has all the medicinal qualities of that herb. Your tincture, yeah. Yeah, totally. yeah, and then it lasts. And so I think that you know, like when you were talking about the meaning of medicine, how it was mead combined with herbs you know yeah absolutely you have a preserved drink and then also i mean what what drink can you share with everyone in the crew without getting like they their sickness you know is well an alcoholic drink is something that's you know already you know going gonna kill germs right yeah like over three percent i've heard will will basically neutralize uh, that which can be passed between people. So, I mean, it's wild stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely tied into our development. You get the silver goblets out, and then you have even more, right? You know, the silver. That's why we had silver. Was it would it would um, cleanse our food and would cleanse our water. That's why people have family silver. Wow, cool. Yeah, well, we have all this, like, forgotten knowledge, and I mean, uh, we can't grasp it all. That's why we need experts like you who are, it's kind of like you're a historical record keeper almost, too. Yeah, and there's a lot of awesome people that have held on to this knowledge and, and added to it, and Ken Schramm is, is one of them. Uh, he wrote a book called Complete Mead Maker and uh, really took a scientific approach but in homage to like all the tradition as well so it's it's a great entry point for folks who are interested and passionate about mead it's called the complete mead maker by ken Schramm. and reading his book in the introduction he says like if this book inspires one person to start a meadery then i i will have succeeded and that book inspired me to start a meadery and about a dozen other people that i know too so uh I don't know if if we're getting anywhere. It's because other people have done great work that is really like part of their life's passion. Um, and I don't know. Sometimes it feels like the Highlander, you know. <laughs> well, speaking of the Highlander and that kind of thing, I always thought that mead came from like a honeymoon. And you would drink mead for like a whole cycle of the moon when you got married. And then at the end of it, surprise, your bride's pregnant. Babies. Yeah, babies, right? That's what I thought the story was. Has this happened yet? Have you had a customer just be like, I will need a shipment of mead to last me a month? 30 30 bottles. 28 bottles. Um... Regrettably, uh, we haven't had an order specifically for honeymoons, but we have had wedding orders, which is pretty awesome. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah. But so yeah. no one's testing this. No one's proven this. This. No one's passed on the ritual. No one's living in the history. Uh, well, you know, I think uh, that was when procreation was a little more arranged, uh, and I. Uh, <laughs> Uh, like the the. Story oh, I know it. Somewhat... You had to be inebriated to. Oh. Yeah, it was kind of like part of the dowry to like, you know. Ah, I never even thought about that. I know it's not as romantic a story as I could tell, probably, but uh, uh, there are definitely rose-colored glass elements to drinking mead uh, on a full moon with someone that you that you care about. Yeah, indeed. 
But but I do see now why you stick to the Odin stories. <laughs> and and the Odin story is written down. The honeymoon one. Uh, there's a few different explanations. Some a little more credible than than the the mead one, which is a little sad. And like in the mead world, we all conveniently ignore those other ones. But uh, but it's a good story nonetheless. <laughs> It's funny how, like, often colloquialisms are, like, the things that we get wrong, and it's fringe stuff that is more accurate. Right, right, because, like, I don't know, I think the path of least resistance uh, just kind of lends itself to to people believing and stuff, whereas... It's erosive. understand. It's like erosion. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like things... Misconceptions happen easier than the real story, in a way. Um, but I'm probably guilty of that, you know. I think we times all are. That's very so human. I shouldn't be calling any kettles black, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we're human, right? That's what our, the condition is. We we tend to judge and we tend to mis, you know, misjudge. <laughs> and I think you know that humility of acknowledging it gives us the grace to like um to try again and and if we admit our mistakes to folks whose trust we we need um you know they're willing to share that humanity with us and and kind of all right well you're you're trying your best right and that's actually benefiting all of us all right well we'll give you another chance you know it's when i think you're ashamed of your mistakes so that uh you have problems. Alienation, primarily. Yeah. So you've been how long? You've been a parent for two and a half years. You've been a business owner for five. Four and a half. Four and a half, almost five. So almost three, almost five. Yeah. So which do you think you learned more from? <laughs> uh, they're so complimentary. They uh, are, aren't they? It's weird. I feel like. So I was reading something that said that entrepreneurs are the modern day warrior and it really resonated with me and I felt like suddenly confident and I was like, yes, I'm doing the right thing. This is why, you know, it feels right. And yeah, I just wonder about how everyone else feels about it. So I was talking to my intern today about being an entrepreneur and sometimes I think the definition is like making value in a way that no one else or few other people have ever made value before. Mm. You know, otherwise you'd just be like a franchisee. <laughs> um, and so I think it's like one of the most liberating, like being a parent. It's it's this wonderful creative challenge, and and part of it is like. I want this thing to have a life of its own. I want it to be greater than me. Uh, and then part of it is like, but I'm ultimately responsible too. Yeah, that's uh, the thing is it's you're complete, res- completely responsible for its like success and failure. And that's which what you feel like until your kids are, you know, 16, 18, 20, 25. I don't know exactly where the range is, but somewhere, well. you know. <laughs> so... <laughs> You'd Somewhere between there, we're entirely responsible for them, too. Yeah, my eight-year-old, I mean, he gets upset when I start making him dinner now. He's like, what? I had a plan. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, I'm making with the food we have. You know, and he's like, well, no, there's egg, there's two eggs and basil and, and mushrooms. I'm like, I got oh. this, Dad. Yeah, yeah, get out of the way, Dad. So yeah, before you know it, I mean, if you really empower them, they they take it away. <laughs> but then you get to watch, which is which is cool too. Yeah, and then like the value add of the home unit unit becomes like exponential, right? Like, oh, that's kind of on autopilot. All right, we can we can expand our uh, our capacities here. <laughs> Absolutely. And usually, yeah, and usually what what that is is like a re-gearing. Um, I mean, like right now, uh, I've been going through contracts for the insurance, for the consent forms, for the driver consent forms, for 
you know, all the different things for, for running a school. And I'm, I'm re- literally rewriting contracts. And it's like right now yeah. I'm a contract writer. And that was, was a hat I didn't think I'd ever put on. But it's kind of cool to know. Super cool. Yeah. And, and the, mm, the resourcefulness that you realize you have um, is really empowering. And, you know, I... It's like a self-recognition. Sometimes. Say again. It's like a self-recognition. You you recognize like parts of yourself that you didn't know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that if if somehow we could all kind of take this ownership over our own lives, uh, we would we would create better systems. Better better yeah. cities. Better better societies. Better governments. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, it's uh, it's quite the adventure, and uh, I think there's a few skills that I've come upon recently that have really like gotten me a little more focused, and I think a little more capable. Like you know, hire people that are better than you. Oh man, that has just been so clutch. Like the teammates that we brought on recently nice. are better than me at the things that we hired them for. Wow, so much more capable in those realms. Uh, yeah, I, that in music we did that. All right, so we I was in this band and I was playing bass and was like writing lyrics and everything. And then I just was like coaching the guy doing everything. And I was telling him, you know, you could be saving money doing this. You could do this. And I basically like talked myself out of a job. But he went <laughs> and hired like the best people. He got like Mars Volta sax player and all this stuff. And he made like unreal music um still couldn't sell it but it it was much better (laughs) (laughs) yeah that other piece like the business model piece uh jevon brekanovich uh yeah yeah. about that about like look at all the things you do in your life and break them out into like three categories either yes or no like are you good at it do you like doing it and does it bring you more energy, i.e. money, i.e. life force? And if you can say yes to all three of those questions, to like, if you, you know, 90% or more of what you do in your day, then you are on the right track for you, you know? Yeah. So, does he have kids yet? Right? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a single person's philosophy. You, there's time periods... <laughs> Where you just gotta eat it, and then you gotta <laughs> gag, <laughs> and you gotta crawl up that mountain with broken legs, and you just gotta do it, because like at the end of the day, if you die, you know your kids are gonna do better. You know what I mean? I I don't know. I'm just extreme. Well, I think, <laughs> you know, I think that uh, that there's a balance there. Like like if at the end of the day you resent that sacrifice. Oh, yeah, then you kill anything you're trying to grow in that garden. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, yeah, a lot of uh, jiu-jitsu style re- redirecting, right? Yeah. And you know... Yeah, my wife's way better at it than I am. <laughs> well, that's why we married them, right? <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I, I can't say that I was... Uh, directly evaluating her ability to, or, or promise of being a mother but uh, man she is good at it it is it is a good partnership to have yeah yeah partnerships are the best I feel man I mean like we're talking about like the sacrifices we make for our family and the, and the work we do it, it even when, even when, like, everything's ruined, <laughs> and you feel ruined, and everything <laughs> feels awful, you know, you know that you have this thing that is, like, like a business. It's uniquely your responsibility, and it rises and falls by, you know, your participation, your choice, and all this stuff, and you know, we're entrusted, it's kind of, mad. I mean, it's it's amazing. We're, we're entrusted with these, like, endless potential, like, beings. 
and they just can that they could become anything and do anything and so it, it i mean they're the ultimate seed right on this planet i think a human is an ultimate the ultimate seed because we can plant yeah. seeds right so yeah i just think that more people need to to realize that you can't follow your bliss i saw that someone was like follow your bliss i was like well you know, you do that, your kid might turn out weird. <laughs> but, do, but do the work. Like, I think that's the asterisk. It's like, follow your bliss, but manage the risk and do the work. You know? Yeah, and like, I think that I think that's like, like, how, like, for me, it's like the lessons in business are like, you take them in the teeth. And it's like Diego said, that money you lost was the money you paid in tuition for the hard knocks of life. <laughs> I was just thinking about that as I drove up the drive. <laughs> Dude, have you been like I? I've definitely been like the carbonation issue is like is like a gut wrencher because the risk is you have exploding bottles. Oh yeah, and that's an unacceptable risk. So you know we had one batch with exploding bottles that we had to keep off the market, and like that was a significant amount of money that we did not sell, and there was like a little mental experiment while I was like driving up the driveway thinking about these uh, wild fermented yeasts and like the rate of carbonation production from these wild yeasts and like I was like oh man maybe I should go to the Siebel Institute and study this and I'm like well one that would cost me at least fifty thousand dollars two they don't even know you know (laughs) these people have no idea so we're basically learning it anyways and at the end of the day if we have to dump a product um, like that's, that's too bad. Uh, but it's cheaper than going to Siebel, you know? Yeah. And not only that, you do it and you own it. And so it's your, it's, it's completely in your house, you know? Yep. Well, I love it. I love hearing about this. What's next on your radar? Um, man, so... We're really uh, focusing on getting just like a stable backbone. We've we've grown in big steps. You know, they talk about every business just taking big, uncomfortable steps and getting to a new level. Uh, and we've we've finally gotten to the point where it's like consistent uh, revenue greater than expenses is is possible. Um, but we've got to do a little more focusing to really make that happen, uh, so that we can kind of take that business and transform it into the next level, which is like I alluded to earlier, the, the three tiers of mead, you know, we really only got the first tier is like everyday drinking meads that are at a price point that hopefully our friends can afford to drink at least once a week, if not more. Um, but then the, the second tier would be build a market for local beekeepers. So that means we're kind of supporting beekeepers and transitioning to organic beekeeping practices and hopefully encouraging the landowners that they keep their bees on to to convert as well because if we're paying them more for their honey there's a chance that the beekeepers actually start to pay the landowners who are doing organic practices so it's this great trickle down that hopefully results in like a transition of our landscapes uh in southern california and maybe beyond um can you then okay keep going yeah uh, I just then, had an idea. Uh, I mean, like, I, I dream of getting my hand back into hives once a week. Uh, usually now it's only like once a month if I'm lucky. Uh, but I love opening up a beehive and just like mm. getting to know each hive and uh, making the best honey imaginable because it's like from flower to hive to bottle, you know. I know it's just like a direct link between sunshine and and us. <laughs> Beautiful. So my question was, can you make a probiotic drink with honey that's like light mead? Because I mean, right now everyone wants it. Like they want kombucha, they want kefir, they want a probiotic drink, they want rejuvalac. And, and mead has probiotic properties according to uh, already, according to the that uh, that that stu- that study the scientist was doing in Sweden, so I'm wondering if you could make like, 
probiotic light need or like need, you know, any, yeah. so it's not, no, no, it's not need, right? J U N, uh, like fun with a J. Oh, you do it. Yeah. Well, we've done it. And that's actually how we got our sour mead the first time. It's kind of like an unintended consequence. Uh, but it's basically like a kombucha scoby symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast uh, that has been adapted over a, maybe a short amount of time, maybe a long amount of time. No, there's, no. there's di- different stories. Uh, some people say that like Tibetan monks were making this stuff a thousand years ago. Sander Cat, who's like the godfather of fermentation, uh, or like the the revival of fermentation, uh, argues that maybe it's just a kombucha scoby that was recently adapted to honey and green tea instead of white sugar and black tea. But uh, it certainly does do a good job of making a probiotic drink out of honey that is delicious um, and you know can be loaded with all kinds of rad herbs and stuff. We were using shizandra berry um, and making it like super adaptogenic awesomeness um, so and this would be something that everyone could drink and this would, yeah, wouldn't be alcohol percent alcohol yeah and so that's that's the thing is all these all these beverages that are slightly alcoholic are actually what we should be drinking you know and perhaps we've been drinking as our just beverage for you know thousands of years as some people are suggesting um because we always kept things in, in, in the stomachs of animals and we, we were always trying to preserve things to keep things uh, going. Um, yeah, keep the bad bugs out by yeah. spoiling it intentionally with the good bugs. Right. And so yeah. I'm super excited um, to hear that you're on top of this. So when, Well, when, we're not on top of it, Matt. I wish we were. Uh, we had to like curtail the production because it was causing all these unintended fermentations. Oh, um, this, so this is the suspect. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's like the smoking gun for sure. Uh, but I don't know. My, my You're going to have to reinvent the bottle. They were so good. You just have to reinvent the bottle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we can. Uh, it's just a matter of a little more space. Um, so hopefully that'll be in the not too distant future as well. I'll part and parcel of the like, okay, backbone of the business is up. Now let's divert some funds and some attention towards the next project. I mean, how fast? I mean, is it incredibly fast? Because I know there's plenty of pro. Yeah, wow. So is there some way you can DIY it so you send them the components and they like combine it at home and they're like, okay, quickly drink. Uh, you know, well, it's like 10 days. And then if you keep it refrigerated, it's mostly shelf stable. Excuse me. Mostly shelf stable. So that was one of the tricky pieces was like building that logistical line into our, um, process because the mead doesn't have to be refrigerated uh but the john does because you bottle it with a significant amount of residual sugar and that can just like go crazy um like we've had bottles of john be opened and then just a geyser of foamy john mess (laughs) that's like keeper we've had keeper hit the ceiling we've had keeper go 30 feet in the air (laughs) Like, how much is in this bottle? How can you go 30 feet in the air, you know? Yeah, it turns out when it's mostly foam and, like, very little liquid, the, the volume just really increases. Yeah, my son Rap- my, my son wants to start cars with uh, that run off kefir, and, I, and <laughs> I keep trying to explain to him that we have to re-bottle it and then release it again somehow. So he's, like, working on that for years now, but he, he loves the explosiveness of kefir. Like get them old CO two cartridges and like just put a little bit of kefir in the bottom and then seal it back up and then yeah Uh, they call that actually rapid evacuation that's the technical term and this is one of the things that you learn by doing you know (laughs) do you think do you think that at some point we're gonna figure out how do you make electricity work with um, bacteria because of this this because it's a force yeah man. Oh, man. I mean, 
my hope for those kinds of technologies is abundant, but I think but you, you know, what can I actually do about it? Like, well, well, I mean, the, that's the thing is you've got all this equipment. You're you you're essentially like an Edison of need because you, I mean, I mean you're, it's medicine. It's 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 you know like it's for recreation. It's all these different things that you could probably use it as a preservative. Have you actually tried to um, make it into liquor? Yeah. How's that? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Is that coming out soon? Am I like busting up, busting down the door? Well, we uh, we need to uh, develop uh, a relationship that will allow us to explore further. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I love the fact that you got everything. I, like, I guess, and you got it. <laughs> well, I mean, so that's one of the things, right? It's like you got to choose your your porcupine concept. You know, your your one thing that you do really well, and then use that to build your momentum. Yeah, absolutely. Mastery. You have to master something. You have to become a master first if you want to spread spread out. Otherwise, you just kind of go too thin, and it just kind of peters out, right? Absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you so, so much so for coming on. Uh, there will be a, a mead fiefdom down here with lots of, you know, uh, ecosystem uh, components that are all part of the same abundant endpoint, you know. Yeah, and I can't wait to try some of your jean. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, there's there's a guy making it up in um, Humboldt uh, who used to partner with us and then he took off for the north. His name's Tyler uh, and he sells, I think, in one of the farmer's markets up there. So if you find yourself up in Humboldt, uh, look for some Jun. Okay, heck yeah. And and maybe I'll, I'll figure out how to make it myself. Yeah, yeah, it's super, it, like, as long as you get a clean culture, which are available online at, like, Kombucha Camp, with a K, um, you'll, basically, if you can make, uh, Kombucha, you can make John. Okay, cool. Does it have to be with, uh, green tea? Yeah. Uh, at Lock. least, that's my understanding, is that, like, different scobies thrive in different mediums, and... That's uh, totally... Kombucha. That is totally why he thinks it's more recent, because it's because uh, it's green tea and there wasn't green tea already. Really? Well, think about it. it I mean, green tea is as old as black tea, right? It's in fact green tea is an earlier iter- like it's an earlier stage of the tea, right? Okay. And then there's white tea, which is like the flower. So cool. there's there's all these different stages, and so. If there was already a green tea scoby, you know, we would have already had it everywhere if it was thousands of years old. And I think that we're just getting better at adapting things and keeping things clean so we can do more things with things. Yeah, that is that is one of the elements that, like, gets a little witchcrafty. Is like, how do you know that this scoby is, is like, its peak um, articulation, if you will? You know, like, our sour culture has really changed over like seven or eight generations oh yeah and and you know we're kind of going back to one of our earlier cultures oh you kept it we got it we got it banked by a lab um and that's like much more lactobacillus and much less brett and like we did an experiment a side-by-side experiment using like the ninth generation culture and the lacto culture that was harvested from the second generation and under a microscope they just are are very different um and so you know how do you but i think with the scoby you kind of have a more self-managing ecosystem um like they all kind of glommed onto each other because they make each other happy whereas our mean fermentation doesn't take an actual solid form um, it's it's more of a big dust at the end that we harvest and then pitch. So I wonder if the scoby is a more self-managing manifestation of microbiological life than a yeast culture. 
Yeah, and same thing with uh, the kefir grains because they're, uh, they're they're these big clumps, and they I've had the same exact experience where I've had I've actually had a very interesting experience with kefir water kefir. So we used to use coconut sugar, and then all the tsunamis happened, and something changed about the coconut sugar. I don't know what they were doing, but something's different about it, and I started getting this like funk in like this weird just not right taste and I, I no one could taste it but me and then like two ah, generations later that. yeah two generations later everyone tasted it but like it just it just was like okay well there's something wrong with the sugar and we had to just change sugar and sometimes it's just like you can't you have to like start over because it gets on this this one train and it just stays on that and I don't know I've, I've, I've totally had that happen and I think sometimes it's the water um, and the minerals in the water sometimes um, it's the sugars and then I don't know maybe sometimes it's too much sugar or too little sugar over time and it's like with a population of people right you give them too much uh, money and they get prideful, and they get, you know, and then you have to, and then society imbalances, right? So, I think it might be that, unless you're, you're probably much more um, exact than I am. Well, I don't know, man. I think it's the same problems, just on different scales, and like, you realize how limited your tools are sometimes. Um, so... But then you choose which problems to focus on and, and hopefully run those to, to ground if possible or at least to, you know, 95% acceptability and then, uh, and then pick up the next problem to troubleshoot. Um, yeah, I mean, we've done everything from just, you know, five gallons of, of mead, four gallons of water, one gallon of honey, okay, let's see what happens, to... Uh, you know, bringing an industrial engineer on who could help us kind of like recognize control points and set up criteria that would give us the highest probability of the outcome we were after. So it's really been uh, a journey of, of figuring out what problems can be solved and which problems aren't as important right now. And I think that that's, uh, you know, going to be the work of my life. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're, I mean, you're blazing a path, right? Oh, my man, I mean, we are very blessed to to, uh, to be on it, and it is uh, a pleasure to get to talk to folks who are doing the same thing, man. I mean, let's see what you're doing up there. I'm like, so when can we get a permaculture school going down here in Fallbrook? Because that would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about moving around and setting them up in multiple locations. I've got almost like 10 people wanting to do it. Maybe doing a teacher training online over the summer. I don't know. It could be big. Awesome. Yeah. And the charter school movement just seems to unleash so much efficiency and productivity uh, on the education um, landscape, you know? Yeah, I think it all depends. I mean... The problem is that, I just came from a charter school, and the problem is that they're all like running on fumes, right? The funds that they're running on are just fumes, and the real the gas that was what we really needed to like fund things is not even there. And so all these schools that were running fiscally irresponsibly, and, and most of the charter schools aren't, aren't, are just, you know, they're looking for grants. Why? Because they don't have money. They're... they're turn it into like computers because they can't afford textbooks. They're, you know, they're doing all this stuff because they, they're running out. And so I think, I mean, like I created my school so that people could actually have teachers that could afford land and have families, you know, and we could have schools that actually taught things of value. Um, you know, it's like, that's what you were striving for when you started your business was meaning. Uh, like having value and I, th yeah. I think community has lost that and it's like if we think of community as a person there's someone we've neglected and it's like 
why isn't community around? Well, community was insulted, neglected, and they're over there now. It's like, well, we got to bring community back. We got to woo it out of that corner and apologize and do things. And I think that service learning, where we have kids serve each other's families and the community as they learn, like we build a garden today for them, we build a garden for them tomorrow. I mean, that's how we draw communities together, and the Amish do it, and if you look at traditional societies, they do it everywhere. That's also an interesting thing that keeps happening, and as you just alluded to, you needed industrial, commercial, higher level help, but you're bringing this ancient, this ancient form of, of culture, and this, it's, it's actually an artifact of culture, really. You're bringing it back, and you're combining with this, this, you know, modern age science and efficiency. And I think that's what it's all about is, is that we're remembering who we are or were or who our, what our blood was, right? Because our genes are just echoes of our ancestors. And I think that many, many people are waking up to this. And I think you, you're on to it. And I'm trying to get there. Uh, I, I think once this school's in place, I'll be able to really get there. I, I've had a few people that I've really been able to help change their lives, and they're on some serious trajectories, but it's early days for me. <laughs> wow, man. That's really beautiful. Um, I, I, <laughs> how do you remember culture and community and education and sharing and... Well, you do it through your dance parties, right? And dance sto- parties. And storytelling, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, and, and like joy. You yeah. Know, let joy, let yeah. joy lead it. And that's the thing, though, is joy, if you look up the definition, joy comes through hardship. It's not happiness. Joy is different. Joy comes through work and sacrifice. And I think that that is true. Follow your joy, not your bliss. Mm. So, yeah. Nice. Kids are a joy. They're work. <laughs> and so is business. Very similar. Thank you so much for coming on, Frank. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Uh, I would love to host you down here and your fam if you get a chance. We've got a little spot in Fallbrook that would be very fun to uh, to romp around on and show you the meteries sometime. Heck yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. My sons, my sons would love to see things explode. <laughs> Well, we'll save a few of the overcarbonated bottles for when they show up. Nice. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, you get some rest, and I'm going to go get some rest. And uh, while our, Well, maybe we talk to our wives while, while our children rest, right? For the small amount of time we get. <laughs> yeah, and we'll be back at it tomorrow, man. Yep, that's the way it goes. Indeed. Well, thanks for the opportunity, man. I uh, look forward to the next time I get to hang out with you, man. Heck yeah, I can't, yeah, do you come up at all? Oh, man, um, 